0: This is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And as we record this, as this is released, it is the holidays. Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, Cyber Monday, Giving Tuesday have all come and gone. And this is the time of year for giving and donating, whether that is your time or your money. But for many, especially women, nonprofit isn't just a a once-a-year thing. It's a full-time job. And it's a job with conditions that lead a lot of workers to burn out, which is something else on our minds lately. This holiday season, please keep in mind the people behind the charities you support and how we can push for better for them. And please enjoy this classic, to learn more about the world of nonprofit organizations,
1: welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about nonprofit work and philanthropy, partly. Because as we're recording this, tis the season. Mm-hmm. The holidays are upon us, holiday giving. Not to mention that Caroline and I both have personal experience in the nonprofit space, and we're not making a joke about podcasting.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, no, I actually had two back to back nonprofit jobs before I came here, and both were super women dominated. Um, we didn't have a whole lot of dudes, and at both, uh, the upper echelons were also stocked with bunches of women, which, as we will get into, not to spoil the whole show, but um, that that can be pretty rare for, for bigger nonprofits that are in charge of lots and lots of
1: millions and millions of dollars. So my nonprofit job was my very first job out of college because in a quintessentially millennial way, I decided that if... I was going to work 40 hours a week, then it should be for the betterment of humanity. And
2: everyone out there who works at a nonprofit just laughed at you saying 40 hours a week, but continue.
1: Right. Uh, And I was fortunately working with a terrific team of people. And um, my boss really took me under his wing and was such a kind mentor. And, (laughs) oh, man, I could tell you so many stories about him. He's just fabulous. And if he's listening, hello, Magnus. (laughs) Um, But I was quickly introduced to all of the stereotypical things that come along with the nonprofit world. Like you said, Working 40-plus hours a week, particularly around annual giving time, around our annual gala, um, and also making very little money at it. I mean, granted, I was freshly out of college, but compared to starting salaries at for-profit jobs, it was was tough to live on in Atlanta. Well, and... We put
2: out a call on Facebook not too long ago for ideas of topics to cover. And we heard from listeners who really wanted us to cover this topic, specifically what you're talking about when it comes to money and the expectation that because you are young uh, and you are passionate about a cause, that you will be okay with making less money, working crazy hours because of your love, for the fill in the blank, whatever it is that your your nonprofit is supporting, and a lot of our our listeners who send in requests were saying like, "Yeah, we love what we do, but I mean,
1: we have to live as well. It's a recipe for burnout a lot of times." Totally. I am curious to know whether you in your your back to back nonprofit jobs, whether you were intending to join a nonprofit, whether you were specifically seeking one out, or. If it's just sort of what fell in your lap, because there's some terrific nonprofits around here.
2: Yeah, I actually, um, the first nonprofit I wound up at was a total accident. Um, but when I had worked at the newspaper, frequently I would tell one of my managers that, like, I've got to get out of here. I mean, for so many reasons, but I've got to get out of here. I want work. That has meaning to it because again, it's not like I was a reporter saving the world, right? I was a copy editor. I was behind the scenes and that's where I was comfortable, but I really wasn't helping anyone other than to correct grammar, which is really important. You guys, it's but it's so important. It's not the same thing as working directly with people, helping people, raising money, whatever, whatever the, the, the case may be. Um, and so I knew. That just like you, quintessential millennial who like wants to be involved, wants to help, has stars in her eyes. Um, I knew I wanted to get involved with some type of nonprofit, but I also was in the thick of the recession when I was at the newspaper. And as we'll touch on a little bit later, that's how a lot of people in our generation have wound up in nonprofits, especially right out of college, because... There were obviously during the recession so many layoffs, so many companies shrank. And what you would see around that time about, you know, not quite 10 years ago was a lot of young people taking the jobs they could get, and a lot of those ended up being at nonprofits.
1: So you had back-to-back ones, though. Did you ever Mm -hmm. feel in your time, especially because... uh, we don't have to name them, um, but uh, they were very different experiences and very different types right. of places. With either of them, did you feel like you were making – did you feel like there was take-home value on top of your paycheck of the, the f- good feeling supporting the cause that your nonprofit was all about?
2: Not really, no. Um, well, the first nonprofit was not the kind where you are necessarily – Helping anyone More like it was, a social enterprise, right? It was yes. It was it was not going out and directly helping people. Um, the second nonprofit I worked at was a massive, massive, massive company, and it did not feel like a nonprofit. You know, um, in this political season, you hear people referred to as "rhinos," Republicans in name only, and I often felt that I worked at an. In Pino, non profit <laughs> name only. Um because all of the higher ups did drive the BMWs and the Mercedes and um had all of the designer clothes and bags and I would never begrudge anyone that kind of stuff if if they can afford it and that's what they choose to do. But uh the only time I truly felt that I connected with the people that we were working for was when I actually did interviews and wrote articles about the families and the children. Um, and then that was rewarding because you'd end up speaking with someone on the phone for two hours and crying with them because their child survived cancer, you know? So a little bit of a different situation.
1: And I think that the the larger, as we're going to talk about, the larger of a nonprofit budget that you get, the wider of a gap that you see between the entry-level coordinators, say, um, who are freshly out of college like I was, and, your CEO who is whining and dining with wealthy people, partly because that's the way that you drum up money. Um, But there are also, you know, questionable issues around that, especially when you look at the gender breakdown of the nonprofit sector. And it is so heavily female dominated up until you get to the upper management where you do start making More money. And, um, I, even, even as someone who had not much, but some experience in the nonprofit world, to kind of take all of our research in and contextualize that gender dynamic within all these issues of burnout and low pay and, Working however many hours a week that you have to um, and, and essentially being taken for granted sometimes and it being considered women's work because it's mm-hmm. charity uh, is really disturbing, honestly. And before we get into the. Darker issues of the nonprofit world. Why don't we start out with a little bit of history?
2: Yeah, and without going all the way back to the 17th century, because trust me, I could invite me to a party, I'll tell you all about it. Um, but let's start, uh, in the 19th century, uh, which is a very good place to start because that's when you see the progressive era, right? You start to see more and more people concerned with social issues, health and education issues, and you've got an explosion in these things called voluntary associations. And that's everything from the Freemasons to uh, types of organizations that we've talked about on the podcast before called women's clubs. Basically, uh, these were everything from social organizations to get together to help people um, get into politics, to having marginalized groups get together to help one another.
1: And if you think about all of these forces that are happening in the United States around this time, with, as you say, you have an influx of immigration, industrialization, urbanization, the expansion of education, um, and also just moral reform, Mm -hmm. Um, you might have... Uh, groups like the Daughters of Temperance, uh, who were focused on drunkenness, public drunkenness. Um, and then, of course, around the Prohibition era, you would have a lot of women involved in that. Um, with suffrage, you have the rise of groups like the League of Women Voters. And then when it comes to education, you see women getting together and forming clubs that ran daycares. And across the board, if you look at the focus of Women's nonprofit and charitable work, it tends to focus on education, child care, and women's issues, which makes sense. I mean, because they are – we're focusing on usually the, the underserved. Yeah,
2: and I mean, the the percolation of all of these nonprofit organizations and voluntary associations that that started happening in the progressive era really would end up informing – um non-profit and activist work that we would see in the sixty 60s, and even today, because you would see the establishment of civil rights nonprofits like the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, NAACP, Congress of Racial Equality, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, and their activism and advocating directly contributed to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You also see groups like NOW and NARROW launch, disability rights groups like the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill and United Cerebral Palsy. All of these groups, a lot of which still exist, and they're following in the footsteps of these people who were coming together starting in the mid to late 19th century. Um, And, you know, Kristen mentioned the issue of immigration. Uh, also, in the context of the time, you have to think about the fact that we had in this country a lot of Roman Catholic, German and Irish immigrants who brought their traditions of voluntary action and charitable groups to this country. And they, uh, in their neighborhoods, would launch what one source referred to as a benevolent empire of schools, orphanages, temperance societies and social welfare groups to help their communities, and help look out for each other.
1: Although, of course, like that's not just a European import. If you look at Native American groups and cultures around the world, I think it's a natural human impulse a lot of times for us to get together and help out where perhaps more uh, traditional institutions or governments leave off. Exactly,
2: exactly, Um, which is why you see... Among marginalized communities, among immigrant communities and among women, uh, what one source referred to as parallel power structures. You know, the, a lot of these people were shut out of the the traditional, you know, white male power structures of the day. A lot of the for profit companies or just being able to work at all. And so you have a lot of these sort of parallel employment and activism tracks running alongside the main economy
1: yeah and it's it's interesting to see how women use this kind of work to sidestep a a lot of those even just legalities like uh, married women not being allowed to own any property mm-hmm. or any money. So um, before that became illegal, um, you see wealthier women in particular being really drawn to forming charitable organizations because they could actually control the money in those situations. Or kind of on the flip side of that, a lot of even Earlier charitable work by women centers around, uh, religious groups Mm -hmm. and nunneries. Right. Because, again, that's the only way that they can have more, uh, more independence and say is by essentially like getting away from dudes. (laughs) (laughs) Except for like, God, dude.
2: Thank God the bicycle was invented, right? Ride (laughs) right away from those dudes to your nonprofit
1: work. (laughs) To your convent.
2: But you also see during this time too, it's not just that more groups are emerging, it's that the existing groups and the new nonprofits start becoming more organized. They develop, uh, national level Organizations with state and local chapters, you know, you especially see this speaking of churches, you really see this with uh, different Christian denominations. Um, And someone who really, really changed the nonprofit game, not surprisingly, in the 1880s was super professionally wealthy dude, Andrew Carnegie. And um, he flipped the script, right? So he criticized traditional charity, saying that it only responded to suffering rather than addressing the causes of poverty. And I'm like, yes, yes, that's a great attitude. We should be helping people and meeting them where they are. Oh, but he felt that it was because a lot of charitable giving Only work to encourage the slothful, the drunken and the unworthy. So
1: that sounds a lot like our podcast a while back on welfare and those progressive era concepts of bootstrapping and moralizing poverty. The deserving poor. Right. Exactly.
2: And, And I bring up Carnegie, not because we want to dedicate a whole podcast to him. Um, but more because it is important to note that in the history of voluntary associations, charity and nonprofits, it took very, very, very wealthy men like Carnegie, men who were making their millions off of banking and railroads and things like that, mining um, these new booming industries in our country, the new giant, billionaire, millionaire-type people. It took them to sort of change how nonprofits worked. And so it took a Carnegie or a Rockefeller to launch these foundations. And, of course, the foundations were meant to help people. They were meant to direct funds to the deserving poor or what have you, arts organizations, education Um they were also a good way to protect yourself from taxation, which would definitely come into stark relief about 30 years after Carnegie uh, started his foundation. But, you know, there's all of these big men, these railroad guys, these oil guys who were launching these early foundations. But there are some really incredible uh, early lady foundation starters, many of them have some problematic sides to them. They were, for sure, products of their progressive era existence. Um, But one that jumped out to me because she was literally named alongside John D. Rockefeller uh, was Margaret Olivia Slocum Sage, and she started a foundation to address social welfare issues. Now, Sage is super impressive, right? So in addition to being incredibly wealthy... She grew up in a very conservative family and attended the Troy Female Seminary because why wouldn't our wealthy child from our wealthy family be educated? But the side effect of going to the Troy Female Seminary was that she was like, oh, women should have rights that tends to happen when you educate your ladies and the Troy female seminary actually quietly advocated financial independence for women through education and so Margaret gets all of these kooky ideas to try to do whatever she can to reform women's role in society and so she starts out as a teacher once she graduates which is of course one of the only opportunities open to women to participate in the mainstream economy and in the meantime, she's frequently volunteering. She's like so rich and has all of these doors open to her in life. And she's left and right turning down marriage proposals. She just wants to volunteer. And uh, she finally marries, though, this railroad baron, Russell Sage, at the age of 41.
1: She's 41 or he's 41?
2: She's 41.
1: Oh, man. I she's know. practically dead, according to uh, <laughs> women's age at that time. Practically, yeah. But.
2: Here's the interesting thing about her, right? So um, she's married to Russell for 40 years. He kicks the bucket, leaving her the single largest taxpayer in the entire country because she has so much freaking money. She has a quote from after her husband died, and that is, I feel like I can finally live. So at like 80 years old, Marge launches the Russell Sage Foundation, uh, with the equivalent of like a billion dollars today,
1: and uh, it's still active. Oh, yeah. I I remember the Russell Sage Foundation from the nonprofit I worked for.
2: Yeah. Uh, now, Sage, you know, I, I've said problematic a couple of times now. She did advocate things uh, that reminded me a lot of P. Schlaff, Phyllis Schlafly, uh, conservative traditional femininity, even though she did work outside the home. Um, and was big on the idea of women earning their way. Um, She also advocated stripping lands from Native Americans to give to the whites. So she was not without her failings.
1: Well, hopefully the Russell Sage Foundation continues to make up for uh, her racism. Let's just call it that. One would hope. Um, We also have to shout out, though, a few other women who use their money for good. And this, I mean, you got to remember, too, that like this is such a new thing of women being able to kind of throw their philanthropic weight around and in the mid-19th century, if we head over to Hawaii, yes, Hawaii. Hello, Hawaiian listeners. I know you're out there, and <laughs> I love your state, as I say, anytime we get to talk about Hawaii. So Bernice Pahaui Bishop was a Hawaiian noblewoman and philanthropist, and she endowed schools that still exist. So I'm curious to know if any Hawaiian listeners I uh, have heard of her. Um, she was the leader in charitable organizations like the Strangers Friend Society, which helped sick travelers, which I could have used when I was uh, <laughs> stuck on a boat in China with a horrible food poisoning a couple <laughs> of years ago. And she headed up the Women's Sewing Society, which provided clothes for the poor. And there were a lot of similar Societies where women would get together and use their needlework and handicrafts to make blankets or uh, clothes or even during the Civil War, making uh, bandages mm-hmm. for people. So women, you know, using the tools that they had, which a lot of times were their hands to make the world a better place.
2: Yeah. And then as now. It was so important to have a great partner, right? And so when Bishop died of breast cancer in the late 1880s, her husband, who was super rich, started the first bank in Hawaii, which is still like the biggest bank in Hawaii. In that, a, I hope
1: that's what it's called, just the biggest bank in Hawaii. The biggest
2: bank in Hawaii. Um, it's so big. Uh, he continued all of her philanthropy. Nice. He knew how important helping children, educating children, providing for those less fortunate was. And so he continued to help her uh, educational
1: foundation thrive, which I I just love it. Well, you also got to love old Catherine Drexel. I mean, this woman was a real powerhouse, uh, both financially and also in the work that she did. So she was around in the late 19th century. And in case you were wondering, she was a Drexel of the Philadelphia Drexels, (laughs) very important. So uh, like we mentioned earlier, one way that women found independence, ironically enough, was through uh, becoming a nun. And so Catherine becomes a nun. And then she establishes missions in the South and West United States to educate and provide for African-Americans and Native Americans. She also establishes orphanages, schools, and vowed not to, quote, undertake any work which would leave to the neglect or abandonment of those groups. So it sounds like Drexel less problematic than Sage
2: I think, yes, I think she is generally less problematic than, than a Margaret Sage. And um, basically, her story is so fascinating because everybody in her life was like, Katie, Katie, you're too rich, you're too beautiful, you can't become a nun, you can't hide yourself away like that, you've got to stay out in society. But when she was younger and was able to travel, because her family was so disgustingly rich, the girl could travel. And she went out west and she saw... What essentially white people had done to American Indians saw the poverty, the alcoholism. She saw what was happening to African Americans who were not provided for if they had either escaped slavery or had been freed and had no basically communities of support. And so she was basically like, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to help people however I can. And she went to Rome. She got an audience with the Pope. And she's like, I need you to send missionaries to America to help these neglected people. And the Pope was like, "Um, hold up a mirror. You are it. And she was like, oh, well, I guess I should become a nun. And so she actually ends up, post becoming a nun, she gets a grant from Drexel University. Uh, Because that's her uncle's school that he established. And with the money, she and her fellow sisters founded Xavier University in New Orleans, which is the only historically black Catholic college in the U.S. And she was an outspoken advocate, both vocally and with money, uh, for aid to reservation schools and anti-lynching efforts. And in the year 2000,
1: she became a saint. That's our second saint on the podcast. We've got St. Catherine Drexel and St. Polly Murray. Uh, also shout out to New Orleanians. Love your city. <laughs> I, just, I just, this is just a ge- geographical shout out episode for me. Um, I've always, always wondered though about Xavier because I have friends who went to Loyola and LSU, which I know is not in New Orleans, but Baton Rouge, but nonetheless, <laughs> they're all right there. Um, And I had no idea about this history of Xavier because driving into the city, you always pass this like giant sign for it. And now I want to go visit the campus Um, around the same time, though, we have Mary Elizabeth Garrett. And her story reminds me of Monopoly (laughs) because she was the daughter of the B&O Railroad president (laughs) and since she was born with a vagina, she couldn't yep. exactly take over the family business. But with a massive inheritance, she did manage to establish a philanthropic group of super rich ladies called The Friday Evening. Dude, dude,
2: I totally want to start a band that's called, like, Caroline and The Friday Evening. Oh, that's good. Because it just sounds cool that... Around this time, you've got all of these, like, smoky, dark men's clubs, right, where all of the boys are getting together and helping each other succeed in the
1: world. Well, here's an old girls club, an old rich girls club. Well, and think about um, our episode on uh, International Women's Day and the labor reform movement and how... Women, well-heeled women like a Mary Elizabeth Garrett and her Friday evening friends would go out in their furs and fancy cars and things and would sort of buffer, serve as a barricade for all these um working class people who would be striking for union rights and, you know, doing what they could because the police, of course, were not going to come after and arrest a Mary Elizabeth Garrett. Um So it it is cool to see how women at this time were. Yes, they were born into massive wealth, but you do have some of them who were using it not just to buy fancy new dresses.
2: Well, and what's so wonderful, you know, we mentioned that women and generally, you know, communities who were marginalized had to create these parallel or alternative power structures. And the thing that comes with money is that you can get people to do what you want. And if you have a progressive outlook, frequently that can mean, Paying people to be inclusive, it becomes in their best financial interest to no longer be jerks. And so Garrett uh, provided hundreds of thousands of dollars to Johns Hopkins University to help establish its medical school on the condition that they admit women.
1: Yes, that is the way you use your influence.
2: And there was a quote from one of the higher-ups at the medical school from the time, and he said something along the lines of, I so enjoyed being bought. Uh, Basically, it worked out for everyone. You get to have a prestigious medical school, and women get to be educated to be doctors.
1: Now, someone who was not born into wealth but who worked her way up was Sarah Breedlove, better known as Madam C.J. Walker, who in 1916 launched the Madam C.J. Walker Benevolent Association. And in case you aren't familiar with Madam C.J. Walker, she built uh, a hair care empire um, focusing on African-American women's hair. And in the process, she became America's first self-made female millionaire. Um, but she also knew that giving back and reinvesting in communities was good business. So she was kind of setting up what would be the predecessor to like, corporate responsibility departments now at, at bigger businesses and corporations.
2: Yeah, she knew that she could help people and she felt that she had a responsibility to do so
1: but she was no she was a smart cookie oh yeah I mean, well and and also knowing too the importance of investing in black communities in particular so with her benevolent association she trained and employed women in the U.S., Caribbean, and Central America. And just across the board, she was a huge philanthropist and advocate for African-Americans. And, I mean, it wasn't only, you know, uh the importance of just investing in communities and the return that you would get on that from, you know, the, the uplift, the general uplift, but also some good PR, you know. Totally. <laughs> She was, uh, you would imagine that someone who reinvented herself as a Madam C.J. Walker knew the power of PR. And at this point, we have to take a leap in time to look at our modern nonprofit landscape, which we're going to do when we come right back from a quick break. (laughs) So the nonprofit world is really a product of our post-World War II society. More than 90% of nonprofits today have been created since the 1950s. And really, the, the nonprofit sector that we're familiar with and kind of how it runs more as a business Dates only to the 1970s, along with uh, the rise of NGOs or non-governmental organizations. And it is the fastest growing type of organization in the world. How about that?
2: (laughs) Well, so, you know, I mentioned earlier with Andrew Carnegie and foundations, I I said something along the lines of it's a good way to avoid taxes. Well... The origins of that, and I'll I'll go through this kind of quickly so we can get to the good gender stuff. Uh, That that could be the alternate name of
1: our podcast, by the way. (laughs) Good gender stuff.
2: (laughs) Or bad gender stuff, depending. So in the wake of the Great Depression and leading up to World War II, you've got FDR, who's super steeply progressive income and estate taxes prompted the very, very wealthy in this country to find ways to avoid taxation through large-scale charitable giving. I mean, you see foundations like Carnegie's, but also like the Ford Foundation, exploding. And and I do not mean to say that our charitable foundations in this country or in this world uh, are awful and have terrible motives and things like that. Obviously, groups like the Ford Foundation do incredible work. I'm simply giving you a, a little bit of an explainer as to why we saw leading up to World War II sort of this explosion. And post-World War II, you've got the massive growth of government, uh, public se- sector subsidies of charitable giving. Um, all of these things are stimulating the growth of nonprofit enterprises even more. And so by the 70s a massive chunk of nonprofit revenue was direct from the government, thanks to grants and contracts and vouchers like the GI Bill. So basically, the impact of all of this is that, again, you see a massive rise in nonprofit organizations because essentially they're doing a lot of the work on the ground that the government can't or won't. They're almost like contracting it out to a lot of these nonprofits to handle a bunch of tasks. So in 1980, Reagan comes in and is president, and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) The government's way too big. There's way too much spending, and the line between public and private is way too blurry. But you've got to keep in mind that nonprofits were dependent on all this government money. So all of a sudden, you have these organizations becoming less responsive to community and client needs because they have a lot of their funding dry up from the government. And so they have to become more businesslike and they have to bring on more professional nonprofit managers to basically manage this newly complicated funding environment.
1: Oh, gosh. And whenever we hear that word professionalize, mm. it usually means men in suits taking the highest paying jobs.
2: Yeah. that I mean, I think that, that that's like an excellent point to lead us right off the diving board and into the gender pool. Oh, let's go. <laughs> let's cannonball right in belly flop right, right on into this gender pool. So it should come as no surprise to our fair listeners that women make up a bulk of the nonprofit workforce. But did you know, I didn't realize it was this high, that on average, women, according to one 2012 study, make up on average 75 percent of the nonprofit workforce. And when you break break down those rank and file numbers, it's really interesting. I didn't really expect this, but. The bigger. The bigger. The organization is, and the more money it controls, the fewer women, percentage-wise, are in the organization. So, at smaller nonprofits, women are eighty-two percent of the workforce. At mid-sized groups, they're about seventy-four. But when you hit the big um, nonprofits, the ones that control like twenty-five million plus, women make up just fifty-nine percent of the workforce. Still not a minority, but still a lot less than
1: those smaller. Nonprofit organizations. I am so not surprised because it follows this general pattern of money where mm-hmm. it's smaller nonprofits, basically, that's not even, yeah, still have a smaller headcount, but we're really talking about your budget. So at the teeny tiny nonprofits, you are not making, often you might not even be making a living wage. Whereas if you are working in a massive nonprofit, you, it's possible to make decent money. And so I would imagine that that uh, entices more men into the ranks, not to say that um, guys are only out for you know the money and not for the causes. But, I mean, it just fits in with this broader pattern that we see in the yeah. nonprofit sector and other sectors like uh, teaching.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when you talk about the higher ranks and people rising to the top, Uh, 57% of women who are in the nonprofit world do aspire to reach that CEO level. Um, And interestingly, when you zero in on the 18 to 34 group, that number jumps all the way up to 72. Because
1: we still have stars in our eyes and haven't realized that it's just an old contact.
2: (laughs) Yeah, oh my God, how did I double up my contacts? No wonder everything looks like a hologram. Um, Yeah, that's exactly it because you stereotypically or, or statistically, perhaps have not reached that burnout level yet. Um, and so when you dive into why women want to be CEOs, particularly in the nonprofit world, uh, frankly, I mean, one thing that should be so painfully obvious is like, hello, they have role models and mentors. Yeah, just by virtue of the fact that the industry as a whole is so female dominated, you can easily see in a lot of these nonprofits women who are running them or at the top uh or are managing things and in control of stuff. Do you like how vague I'm being? Um but basically you have foot
1: footsteps to walk in. Absolutely. And uh, you also have this perception of work-life balance because, you know, we millennials, we love our flex time and paid holidays. I was surprised though to see that nonprofits tend to offer longer vacation packages. That is, was, was not my experience, but, um, that was not mine either. People in the nonprofit world. Maybe there, there maybe, maybe there are sectors within the nonprofit world because it is massive, yeah. obviously. Um, that that might be the case. I would imagine, though, if you're in a mid-sized down to more of a grassroots organization, there's very little time to take off. Yeah,
2: cause, well, I imagine you're wearing more hats. Right. Literally, if you're working at a hat nonprofit. Right. But
1: both literally and
2: <laughs>
0: figuratively.
2: Um, and of course, a lot of those perks, though, do frequently come at the expense of, um, making a lower salary. But what an interesting side note I came across is that according to research, women in the nonprofit realm who are over 55 are way more comfortable asking for raises compared with younger women. Not surprising, but, just an interesting side note that with experience and burnout <laughs> comes basically the the cojones to be like, no, you're, you're going to pay me more money
1: now. Well, and it it might also be that their uh, their starry eyed dreams uh, have worn off a bit because um, it is. Another millennial value, as I experienced, to be attracted to the nonprofit sector because you want to work for a cause that you are passionate about. And thankfully, we are seeing universities developing degree plans for nonprofit management and social entrepreneurship to outline more of a direct path. But the problem is if you are starting out or even just not starting out, if you are still in like a, an entry level position, because I know women that I worked alongside at my nonprofit who were there for years and still making next to nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you get into a cycle that is completely dependent on obviously donations and foundations and. Uh, very relevant to our recent recession, government funding. And so during that time when a lot of budgets, especially government funding, just dried up, you get locked in this cycle of having no budget. But it's not like the mission goes away. And you have to, in order to apply for grants and to grow your nonprofit and expand your mission, those... Uh, grantees and philanthropic organizations and foundations want to see the evidence of your work in action. But if you don't have the money to do it, then how are you going to do it? And so what you do is you have employees who are doing a lot for not a little, and you can get away with that, so to speak, the most with younger employees.
2: Right, because it's the whole attitude that is especially prevalent in the nonprofit world of, Paying your dues, you're young, you're, you are starry eyed, and we're going to take advantage of you until we suck the soul out of your body. There's just the expectation. And nonprofit people, I want to hear from you if it's worse in some areas, better in others, if you've experienced this expectation that you will give 150% until you are just sucked dry and will
1: step down. Now, I do, I do want to say that it's, <laughs> it's not all terrible. This is also reminding me of uh, a little reunion that I had with my old nonprofit um, managers and coworkers last year. And I was so thrilled to see one of my, I guess she was more more of a, a manager when I was working with her. And she's now working at a very household brand nonprofit that all of you listening have heard of And she loves it. She loves her job so much. And part of it is just what she's doing in donor relations really fits her personality. But also, I mean, this woman is just an embodiment of integrity. And she has been blown away by how well such a large organization is run. So it can be done in the right way. But also, too, I mean, I wonder, and nonprofit people again, you know, we totally want to hear from you because I wonder if it is harder if you are a mid-sized to smaller organization because someone who is like an A-list nonprofit, they're going to just have bigger budgets. So I wonder if there's more more room for more salaries and perks.
2: Right, and and you and I read an Atlantic article that discussed the Department of Labor updating its overtime rules. Um, and basically it doubled the threshold for guaranteed overtime pay from 23000 to just over $47,000. And while there was a lot of pushback from companies in general in our economy, um, the article outlined how some of the largest protests came from the nonprofit sector because they basically were like, what you're doing in making us pay our employees more and cover their overtime is you're taking money out of the coffers to go support the cause. But there were plenty of other nonprofits who stepped up to sign a letter essentially saying, sure, but it is high time that we valued our employees the people who are out there doing the work helping people it's time
1: that we show that we do value them as well right because what you're talking about right there are your lowest paid workers Mm -hmm. so what (laughs) the subtext of protesting that is saying like hey we we need our lowest paid workers unpaid work and it's like well where's the line You know, so no wonder you tend to have high turnover in the nonprofit sector and incredibly high rates. Of burnout, which also um, our episode with Emily Aries talking about bossed up and burnout would probably be a good follow-up
2: <laughs> yeah. to,
1: uh, to this one.
2: And it makes sense that the women who don't aspire to those CEO positions, then most of them blame it on the time commitment required and the stress involved in leading a nonprofit. Not everybody wants to take that on, and I totally get it. Uh, but when it comes to leadership, the CEO level stuff, the executive director level stuff, um, men are the ones who tend to be at the tippity
1: top of the very top. And we see this in education. Mm -hmm. We see it in library sciences. We see it in social work, which we are doing an episode on next. Men make up 79 percent of CEOs at large organizations with budgets over $25 million, 79%. And compare that 79% to the fact that women make up 59% of the total workforce at those larger nonprofits. And it's not just a salary issue. A 2014 poll found that female nonprofit workers uh, sense a gender bias. Yeah, 44%
2: of women nonprofit workers think that their organizations favor men over equally qualified women for those chief leadership positions. And at those big $25 million plus uh, nonprofit organizations, 40% of women said that their organizations didn't put as much effort into identifying and soliciting affluent women as it does men, which is really strange to me and not something I'd thought about But it's it's a huge mistake. Uh, Deborah Mesh, who's the director of the Women's Philanthropy Institute at Indiana University, uh, says that when you when it comes to people running these huge nonprofits looking at their donors, women are not considered to be major donors or decision makers the way men are. And she said, actually, guys, uh, women tend to be much more loyal donors than men. And they are often better at asking their network. This goes back to the Friday evening girls. Uh, They're often much better at asking their network of friends for support. And she said, We certainly see that in many studies, there are financial gains for organizations when more women are on the board. So, how many women are on the board? Not enough. Women make up 43 percent of nonprofit board members. But again, when you get up to those boards of those humongous big budget nonprofits, that number drops to just a third of the board members.
1: Not to mention those women CEOs make 29 percent less than male CEOs at those largest nonprofits, which is a larger salary gap than in the general economy. Although you see it shrink along with the size of the organization because the smaller the nonprofit, the more women that you have working there. And it makes me kind of just want to take a nap because it's very <laughs> exhausting to see women's work so completely and totally undervalued, even though without nonprofits, our society would fall apart. But here's the thing. There is a major problem with gender, okay, but there is an even majorer problem (laughs) with how few people of color are in those power positions on those boards and running nonprofits.
2: Yeah, Derwin DuBose and Ruth McCambridge both wrote about this over at Nonprofit Quarterly, and they cited a 2014 board source study Uh, that found that 80% of nonprofit board members and 90% of board chairs were white, uh, as were 89% of the executives. Nearly a third of the nonprofit boards they looked at lacked a single person of color. And the thing is, those numbers really haven't changed much in like 20 years, despite the fact that you have so many nonprofits out there who say, yeah, diversity and inclusivity are our core values. And they talked to people of color who actually existed at some of these organizations. And more than 60% said that they felt excluded from power within their organization,
1: and
2: 13% reported experiencing tokenism.
1: And as research from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, highlighted there is a major disconnect between the lack of diversity and who is running and controlling the purse strings of these nonprofits and the fact that at least 60 percent of nonprofits are directly serving people of color. So if you aren't having that kind of representation on your boards, staff or leadership team, not to mention your volunteers – People of color end up as passive recipients rather than active partners. And, oh, this is reminding me so much of Issa Rae's new show. Oh, my God, I was just going to say that. (laughs) On HBO, it's called Insecure, and she works at one of these quintessentially white smaller budget nonprofits and she's the token black person. Yeah, because we're at gonna work. help we're gonna help the urban youths. And but really it crystallizes yeah. a lot of this podcast. We could have just said hello and welcome to the podcast, go watch Insecure. <laughs> I mean you should do it anyway. <laughs> it's but, a really good show. But it is it's a fairly accurate representation.
2: Yeah. And uh Tiziana Deering, who is a Boston College professor and the former executive director of Harvard's Hauser Center for Nonprofit Organizations says As a result, we miss assets that they value in the community and run the risk of failing to understand what quality is to those whom organizations seek to support and under leverage passion for change. Because when you look at nonprofit employees, not not the CEOs, but when you look at the employees, only 18 percent of them are people of color. Uh, And that breaks down to 10% of them being African American, 5% Hispanic or Latino, and just 1% Asian or Pacific Islander. So you are missing out in general in the nonprofit world on a lot of voices who would have so much to contribute to these organizations'
1: missions. But what it's going to take to change this situation is really pulling Mary Elizabeth Garrett. If you are a stakeholder and an influencer with the financial clout to do it, you vote with your money. You say, hey, I would be happy to donate to your organization if you would maybe diversify your staff.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, DuBose points out that there really has to be a clear commitment to inclusivity. And DuBose talks about how People of color who go interview for these nonprofit jobs report that they feel most confident, and this is pretty common sense and not surprising at all, but they feel most confident in the words that the interviewer is Saying when there are actually people of color there to back up those words, those nice, pretty words about diversity and and inclusivity. Um, A lot of people he spoke with and a lot of the studies he cited just show a general sense of kind of disillusionment and not being connected because... All of these nonprofits are like, yeah, we want to be inclusive and diverse and help diverse communities, but we haven't really hired any people of color. And that can lead to a lot of disillusionment and burnout.
1: Well, and I'm sure um, extra burnout, too, if you are the Issa Rae in your office, if you are one of the only people of color in your office. I mean, obviously the, that would apply whether you're working in a nonprofit or not, but when you add the typical conditions of a nonprofit where you might be not paid so much and doing a lot and sometimes depending on the mission, it can be hugely emotionally draining as well. Um, that just adds another layer to all of this. And it's not surprising to see that a 2011 Opportunity Knox survey found that half of nonprofit sector employees might be burned out or in danger of burnout. Um, but, A, there's really no time for self-care, and, B, there's no, time, there's no money for therapy. Yeah,
2: exactly, and, and Sophie Morissette, uh, I wonder if she's related to Alanis, Um, wrote a piece really recently over at the Stanford Social Innovation Review where she's like, yeah, this is not surprising. And nonprofit leaders are super familiar with chronic nonprofit employee burnout to the point where it's almost just, not that it's written into the job description, but it's definitely imprinted on people's expectations of their employees. Uh, And she says, you know, the usual tips are to take vacation, know your boundaries, let go of the need to do it all. But she has some more advice from Third Sector Today that she cites, uh, which is basically like it's kind of depressing advice. Um, she says you need to know when to leave. Set a firm end date for your work with any one organization. Recognize the feeling of burnout creep and leave before you end up freaking out, flipping over a table, and burning bridges. Uh, She says, hey, you know, on the the upside, this makes room for people with fresh ideas and allows you to return if and when you feel refreshed and ready to take it all back on.
1: And listen, I will add something else to that from my own experience. If possible, find your allies who can help maintain that awareness of what's going on. And and I'm talking about maybe, yes, like signs of your own personal burnout creep, but also signs that the nonprofit is not really treating employees in the way that it should be. So go ahead and get out when you can. And, in fact, that is what my boss, who mentored me in a lot of ways, did for me at that nonprofit job. He said, listen, you know, this mission that we're working on is incredible, but... I think that you would be best served if you go because, you know, the hammer's going to come down at oh. some point. Um, and I am still thankful to him to this day because that's how I ended up ultimately in this podcast studio. And to that end, Morissette advises nonprofit leaders on how that they can make a big difference. Um, you can offer that moral support. Yes. But. If you can pay people more and provide perks, that's huge. But I feel like that's so much easier said than done in the nonprofit realm. I mean, because, too, there's that issue of the lines being blurred between employees and volunteers. Mm -hmm. And you often ending up being treated like a volunteer and not being paid for the work that you're doing.
2: Or treated like family. So when it's time to ask for a raise... things get really uncomfortable yeah, because you feel like you're
1: being rude
2: to a friend or or something like that or
1: taking money away from your mission. Right. Let's say your mission is helping kids in some way. It's like, well, we would give you more money. But what about the kids? And of course, the kids need help, too. But um, if half of your sector are burned out, that's that's not going to help the kids at the end of the day. Right. So I am wondering what people listening to this who are who are in that sector um, have experienced. Um, and one gender dynamic that we didn't get into is in more of the startup realm where it's more acceptable gender norm wise for a young woman to start a nonprofit than to start a for profit Startup. Um, This is actually something that Emily Aries of Bossed Up writes about her intent to start specifically a for profit enterprise simply because that is her vision and her goal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she didn't want, uh, doesn't care to be steered into what is considered, you know, a more appropriate. Realm. You know, just go go the nonprofit route. You know, women are more likable when they are leading nonprofits than when they're leading businesses. Why is that the case? And why is it totally cool that this overwhelmingly female dominated sector is borderline exploited a lot of times?
2: Exactly. You're just expected to work for the passion of it. Yeah,
1: and I mean, and these are broad sweeping oh, statements sure. to make about a massive sector. Um, but yeah, there, there's some, there's some major issues going on behind the scenes of all of that terrific on the ground work that nonprofits are doing. So with that. Since you have so much time, people who are working in nonprofits, <laughs> right? <laughs> write us a letter. Uh, no, but sincerely, we want to hear from you um, if you volunteer with nonprofits or if you work in the sector, or if you have uh, benefited from services, we would love to hear all of your perspectives on this. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send your letters. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break.
2: All right. I have a letter here from Brittany in response to our Oprah wasn't built in a day episode. And she says, all I can say is thank you. Literally the night before I listened to this episode, I was on my couch crying over a glass of wine with my husband because I hate my job and feel frustrated that I cannot break into the field I want to work in, which is HR. The frustration came because as I was reading through literally hundreds of job postings, it became increasingly clear to me that I was not qualified for these jobs, despite my bachelor's degree in business and my human resource management certificate. Enter Smenti, quote, women don't apply to jobs until they feel 100% qualified, whereas men will apply when they feel only 60% qualified. Wow. I rewound the podcast twice to listen to that again. In that moment, I had an epiphany. I constantly feel overqualified and bored at any job I have. No wonder. Considering I apply to jobs that I'm already completely qualified for, so within two months, I am bored out of my skull. Since listening to the episode, I have applied to HR jobs that I am 60 to 80% qualified for. I also taped a piece of paper to my bathroom mirror that reads, Oprah wasn't built in a day great reminder every morning to just keep going thank you for your awesome podcast and for inspiring me to go after my dream job Brittany oh Brittany now we're gonna be (sighs) crying into a glass of wine I'm so happy for you and girl let me tell you that 60% versus 100% thing lit a fire under me too and I am so happy for
1: you (laughs) so I have a letter here from Alyssa about the same episode and she writes Oprah wasn't built in a day Seriously could not have come at a better time for me. I'm in my first semester of grad school working on my Master of Library Science. Shout out to your librarians episodes. And I've had a rough couple of days academically. I goofed pretty majorly on two different assignments. And I definitely had a cry myself to sleep want to give up moment. Listening to your podcast, I totally related to everything you talked about. I have always been internally motivated and done well academically. Failure is not something to which I am accustomed. This episode was exactly what I needed to realize that it's okay to mess up sometimes. It was just two assignments in a two-year program that I'm super excited about. Life goes on. Just as Oprah wasn't built in a day, neither is a master's degree. Oh, thank you so much, Alyssa. I'm so happy that it came at the right time for you. And you know what, Caroline? I'm just glad you bought that T-shirt that says Oprah <laughs> wasn't built in a day because I think you have started a movement.
2: Oh, teas in the Trap have helped start a movement. I love that T-shirt, and I'm so glad that sentiment resonates with all of you.
1: And if you have a letter to share with us, MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can do it. And for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn even more about nonprofits, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.